You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad to be here with you this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Um, And before we read and explain and apply the authorial intent of this text, which is what we aim to do. Um, before we, before we uh, understand the text that the Lord has providentially given us for today, right? So we walk in and the Lord by his providence has given us this particular text for today. Before we ask, what does this passage say? What does this passage mean? And then what should we apply in light of this passage? Or that is to say, what should we believe? What should we understand? What should we repent of? What should we obey in light of this text? Before we make clear the particular doctrine that's in this text, before we do that with this text in Luke, let's recite for the last time our months, uh, this month's corporate memory verse together. It comes from Psalm 62, verses one through two. So if you can, say it aloud with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, the only thing that I'd like to point out about this particular text, the memory verse, which sometimes we spend just a few minutes explaining. Other times we move right on into our text. The only thing I want to take notice of in this particular text is the word that. Circle that. In the beginning of verse 2. This use is, it would be the same as the use of a conjunction so that. That's a very important connecting word in order to help you understand the logical flow of that particular text, okay? So here's how this is working. The prayer of the psalmist is that God would be gracious to them. You ever pray like that? The prayer of the psalmist is that God would bless them. Do you ever pray that? The prayer of the psalmist is that God would make his face to shine upon them. You ever pray that? That God would lift up his countenance upon them. That's what that means. His face would shine upon them. Lift up his countenance. Lift up your countenance upon us, O Lord. So that, for the purpose of, that God's way 
may be known on the earth, that his saving power would be known among the nations. So it's as if Israel, the psalmist is representing Israel here and saying, Lord, if you'll save us, if you'll bless us, if you'll give us victory, the world will see that you're the true God. They'll see that you reign, you rule, you're the one true God, you'll get glory. That's what the psalmist is, is writing here on behalf of the people of Israel. God, please bless us. God, please be gracious to us. God, please show your favor upon us. God, please give us victory, success, strength. Have favor on us. Sustain us. Don't let us perish. Don't let us be put to shame. You ever pray like that? You should pray like that. That your glory, your sovereign name, your good and holy ways, your saving power, may be recognized and embraced as it should be by every human in the whole world. God's glory should be embraced. God has created every person on this planet. And whether they realize it or not, they are made to enjoy and exalt their God, the God that created them. And some are walking apart from the very reason in which they were created. And they don't even know it. And the prayer of the psalmist is that the blessing upon his people would be evidence, would be a testimony to the true saving God. God, you deserve glory, and I want you to have it. And what I'd like for us to realize from this is this is the way mature Christians should pray. As you mature in Christ... Your Christianity begins to move away from self and it begins to move towards a God-centeredness. And you're okay with that. In fact, it's the only way to live. As you begin to release your need to be the center of the story, Christianity becomes far less about you becoming a better person and being great in this world, and it becomes far more about God. As you mature in Christ, you release the need to be recognized, to be great, to accumulate treasure in this world, and you grow in humility. You grow in the God-centeredness of your Christianity, which is biblical Christianity. You come in line with the, the balance of God's Word, which has its center or its focus upon God the whole time. And you recognize that the glory or the enjoyment or the submission or the worship of God is the very purpose of the entire universe. And you love that. You're okay with that. You realize as you mature in Christ, the pointlessness, the emptiness, the meaninglessness of being made much of in this world. It's vanity. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's fleeting. And you begin to say, I don't care what happens to me as long as God is honored, as long as God is glorified, as long as he receives glory. And you genuinely only care about that. 
That's how mature Christians think. Because you've recognized your sinfulness, your clear unworthiness, you come to the depths of understanding of your sin, and then you've come to terms and affirmed with all your heart the holiness, the greatness, the supremacy of Christ. That he is much greater, he is much higher, he is much more righteous, he is much more worthy. And so my prayer is that we would pray the same as the psalmist prays here. That God would bring about this maturity in your life and in the life of our church. I want us to be this kind of people. In our church. And this reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Let me show you this one example, then we'll move to Luke. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says basically the same thing as the psalmist is saying. All I care about is you, knowing you, being like you, and you being known. That's it. Right? So all the benefit that would come to him is for the purpose of him, of of God. Right? He says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's what I really want. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things on this earth, in this world. I count them as rubbish. They they don't mean anything. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the purpose, the goal of his life. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know that. I want to make that seen to the world. I want to share in his sufferings because that means I'm going to become like him. He goes on even in the same, in the same heart as, as what he just spoke to say in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the point of his life. And then you know what it says in verse 15? Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's how mature believers think. Maturity in the Lord doesn't compete for, live for, strive for the benefit, the recognition, the reputation, or the reward in this life. So people think highly of us. We don't pray so that blessing would remain on us. We see that as vanity. We see that as empty. It would just stay with us. It's pointless. When it terminates on us, there's a pointlessness to any form of blessing that the Lord could give us. Maturity in the Lord sees the pride and the pointlessness of those pursuits, and maturity in the Lord doesn't love earthly reward, doesn't labor for it, doesn't live for it. It prays for, it lives for, it labors for his name to be recognized and glorified as the only one worthy of all praise. So as a church, let us move on from a self-serving, self-centered form of Christianity and let us move towards a God-centered, God-exalting, Christ 
worshiping version of our Christianity. That we would serve, even the answer of our prayers would serve to display how great and gracious and good God is. So now let's move on to the text that the Lord has given us for today in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Let's read it together. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Gosh, I love the word of God. It's just sweet to the soul when you just read it. Now what we're seeing here is the love of earthly reward. That's what we're seeing here. In this particular passage, what we're seeing is the failure to experience true salvation because of the love for earthly reward. This passage is not about moral living, although it speaks of that. It is about something far deeper, which is salvation. This passage is about salvation. And it's, a, it's about a, the failure to experience true salvation because of one thing in particular, which is the love of earthly reward. The love of earthly reward valued above the hope of heavenly reward. So we're seeing a gracious and merciful call from Jesus to those who are listening, which are the Pharisees, to choose to endure loss in this world in light of the expectation of heavenly reward. Jesus has pronounced judgment often to the Pharisees who are sitting here and many others, and yet he is still calling them to repentance. This is the path to salvation for them if they would value heavenly reward above earthly reward. If they will not, they will never come to God's Christ. It's a gracious call to put their treasure in heaven and therefore believe. And this has a polemical tone to it. That is a uh, confrontational um, uh, warning. Um, uh, threatening tone to it while it's still a gracious call. 
So we're seeing what's hindering the true salvation of the Pharisees and the Jews alike is an unwillingness to forfeit earthly reward for a future heavenly reward. That's what's hindering them from coming to God's Christ. It's hindrances to true salvation. That's why I've entitled this message, Hindrances to True Salvation. And that's the main point of this section. So this is a call to live a certain way. Yes, you might read this and say, this is a call for them to live a certain way. But Jesus is speaking to a far deeper issue. This is of the very essence of the condition of their hearts. So by pointing out the fruit of their sin, he is hoping to illuminate the very essence of the foundation in their heart, the sin in their heart that is actually preventing them from saving faith. So this is keeping them from salvation. Jesus is addressing an issue that has immediate application, of course, but that's not his main point. As Pastor Josh pointed out last week, we know this because of a few clues in the text. Look at verse 14. At the end of our passage, it says, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's speaking about entrance into the kingdom. He's speaking about eternity. He's speaking about salvation. They even recognize this because even if you look at verse 15, even someone who was sitting there said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They know that he's speaking about eternity, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom, not just good moral advice. The Pharisees need far more than just topical moral advice. They need a heart change. And so this is earthly example speaking to deeper spiritually, spiritual realities. And they thought they had this all figured out. They thought they would eat in the, in, in the kingdom of God. They thought they would receive repayment at the resurrection of the just because they were following their own embellishments of the law, and yet they were blind to the very things that were keeping them from true salvation. That is to say, keeping them from recognizing their sin, repenting of their sin, believing in God's Christ, and following Him. And this is what Jesus is trying to make clear to them, what it is they are blind to. He is making plain their issue of what's keeping them from salvation. And here, this particular thing is an unwillingness to go without repayment in this life, to go without reward or recognition or regard or reputation in this life to follow God's Christ. It would require losing your life, dying to yourself, surrendering your reward on earth, entrusting yourself to God silently. It would, it would require enduring loss in this world, holding fast to Christ, having long suffering, knowing that you look as if you are losing in this world by the world's standards and by the world's measurements. You are not great. You are not being made much of. You are not at the top of the totem pole. 
That's what it will require. It will always require that to follow Christ because his ways are competing with the world's ways. You can't serve two masters. You will have to give up the reward of this life in order to follow Christ. That's what it will take for you to come to Christ and that's what it will take for you to follow Christ until the end of your life. If you are unwilling to give up reward on this life, you will at some time disobey the word of God and turn to receive worldly reward because of the immediate reward that you need here on, on earth. It will be impossible to make it with Christ to the end if you're unwilling to do that. So, this is what's preventing them. This is what's keeping them from seeing this truth. And this is what's hindering them. Now, I want to show you, before we move into the particulars of our verses, which is pretty easy, it's just a few verses, you'll see it real clearly as to why I'm, uh, how we're seeing this main point in this particular text. But before we do that, I want to show you what gives us clues to the, to the fact that this is the main point of this particular text. This is what's hindering them from true salvation. Jesus is pointing this out. Now, this is really what the whole section has been about. This is what the entire section of this area of Luke has been about. So let me show you that. Jesus is pointing out their issues that they are blind to, that's keeping them from salvation, and he's calling them into it, but they're rejecting the call. This is the whole section, okay? So let me show you this structure, okay? Look at Luke chapter uh, 13. Just turn your page back one, okay? And we're just gonna, I want you to be consumed with understanding the text, okay? Um, I, I once heard a pastor, I heard a pastor recently said, don't study the world's problems or the world's issues to try to become an expert in that. Just concern yourself with knowing and trusting in and, and uh, understanding the word of God and then you'll know, um, you'll know uh, how to, uh, what, you know, uh, uh, teach sound doctrine, and you'll know then how to um, uh, refute those who contradict it. You just concern yourself, be consumed with the text. Don't have to worry about anything else. So that's the type of mind and heart I want you to have right now. Just concern yourself with understanding the text. Look at chapter, I want to show you a pattern, and this pattern is going to be repeated, okay? That's what we're seeing here, and it sheds light into the meaning of our particular verses, okay? So look at chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus says to the Jews, you must repent, that is, you must recognize your sin, come through me as God's Christ, or you will what? What? Perish. That's the main point, right? Okay, step one in the pattern, repent or perish. Step two in the pattern, in verses 6 through 9, Jesus then laments or pronounces judgment because what he just called, Israel is failing to do. Repent or perish, you're not doing it. The barren fig tree, right? That is to his own people, uh, Israel, have failed to produce the fruit of salvation. If they would have recognized God's Christ, repented, he would have given them life, yet they haven't. Now, that's the first two steps in the pattern, okay? Here's the two steps, repent or perish, and a lamentation or a pronouncement of judgment for their failure to do so. Third step in the pattern then, 
is uh, verses 10 through 17. If you say to yourself, well, are they really this barren fig tree that deserves judgment? Jesus is going to erase any doubt in your mind by the very next section. Because what happens in this next section is this. He goes into the synagogue as the Messiah, teaching how all the scriptures are pointing to himself, because that's what he always did, healing a woman in his great compassion and love. And instead of the ruler of the synagogue, almost a representative of all of Israel, instead of rejoicing, the Messiah's come. Let us believe. He'll have compassion and mercy. He'll heal. He'll forgive. He's teaching us about himself. Let us believe this. Instead, the response is what? Indignation. Here's your proof. So here's the pattern. Repent or perish. A lamentation or pronouncement of judgment that they're failing to do so. And the proof. Look at their hearts that are keeping them from true salvation. Now the pattern's repeated. Flip over, depending on where it sits in your Bible. And we start, a new, we start the same three-step pattern once again. Verses 22 through 30 mirrors the first previous of the previous pattern, which is repent or perish. Here, verses 22 through 30, enter through the narrow door, that is, recognize your sin, agree with God about your sin, believe in God's Christ, or what? Perish. And then we see in the very next section, similar to the judgment and lamentation found with the barren fig tree, Jesus laments, and pronounces judgment over Jerusalem. They're failing to do so. Repent or perish, failing to do so. Right? And then finally, the last step in this pattern, he is giving proof, making clear what is hindering them from true salvation. If you see, I mean, I'll just give you one example, and I'm going to show you all of them, but just in the very beginning of chapter 14, he goes into the Pharisee's house, he heals a man. Instead of rejoicing over the Messiah, his healing power, his great work, the Pharisees become indignant. There's proof. So this is the pattern. And this, you might say, does, why does this matter? Listen, do you know that everything in this Bible is intentionally put there by God? Every word, every pattern, right? His ways are Higher than our ways, we're probably missing 10 other patterns in this passage. So I'll just point out one, right? But this sheds light on the meaning of our passage. This helps you to understand what is the actual meaning of this. Is he just trying to help people understand how to be a good neighbor? Not like just invite rich people over? No. Now, as we are in this last section, we won't do this with, with all of them. Next week, you'll already know this. In this last section of the sin that's hindering their salvation, it's great because he brings even more clarity. And this is for your understanding. What hinders, what's hindering the, the Pharisees' salvation? Now what hinders the world's salvation? What's hindering my neighbor's salvation? What's hindering the North Shore's salvation? Uh, salvation? What's hindering Mandeville's salvation? He goes here and he produces, he shows us four hindrances in a row. Bam, 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 right? Four in a row. Four hindrances. 
And so today we're on the third one. I'm calling this part one, but we're really in part three, right, uh, of this. So let me show you these briefly, and then, and then we can move into our verses. The first hindrance that's hindering the Pharisees' salvation is hypocrisy. That's in verses one through six. He goes into the Pharisee's house. He only, the Pharisee only invites Jesus into the house in order to catch Jesus. He invites the man with dropsy. He invites Jesus. The Pharisee doesn't like either. The man with dropsy is considered unclean. He probably has dropsy in their eyes due to some sexual immorality. So they're not inviting him because they love him or have compassion on him. And then they invite Jesus knowing that he's going to heal the man with dropsy so that they can catch him and say, you healed on the Sabbath. And they're so confused that the law has never given the prohibition of, uh, prohibition of, of healing on the Sabbath It's never said that, number one. Number two, even their own embellishments, which add that to the law, they don't keep themselves because they would pull an ox out of the ditch if it was on the Sabbath. It's hypocrisy. The essence of the hypocrisy of the the Pharisees is desiring a clean outside while neglecting having a clean inside. They do not care about being in right standing before God. They care about how they are perceived by God those who are watching. That's hypocrisy. Right? All of us are true hypocrites in the sense that we desire to be in Christ more than we truly are. But they had no desire to be cleansed on the inside, only to be cleansed on the outside. And if they would desire to truly be cleansed before God, that is to give alms on what is of what is on the inside, then they would be fully clean. So hypocrisy. The second thing that's hindering them in the second section is 7 through 11, which Pastor Josh preached on last week, is a lack of humility. A lack of humility. That is to say that they, they want to be great in this life. And they want to get to heaven on their own. And here's what's even worse. You ready? They think they can get to heaven on their own. So this parable is not about um, how to be a better hypocrite. Hey, listen, if you sit in the back, the guy who comes in, he's going to take you and he's going to sit you in the front. So here's the way to really get in the front. Sit in the back to get in the front, right? He's not giving them strategy. What is he saying? Well, it's a parable about salvation. They are clamoring by their own methods, their own manipulation, to sit to the right and to the left of the host. By their own righteousness, to sit to the right and the left of the host. Starting to get it? And so the point is that they, will do this, they are doing the same thing in order to get in heaven. They are clamoring by their own righteousness, their own sense of wanting to be made much of, to be to the right and the left of the host of heaven. And when he comes, they're going to be very embarrassed because they are, he's going to say to them, um, go to the end. Get out of here. He's going to cast them out. But if they would humble themselves now, what does that mean? Recognize their sin. Acknowledge that they are sinful, that they don't have a righteousness of their own, 
trust in God's Christ and follow him, that is to say, be humble now, put yourself last at the end now of the world, now, then when he comes, he's going to say, come on up here, sit with me, and they will be exalted. That's the meaning. So it's this lack of humility, unwillingness to humble themselves and believe in God's Christ for salvation now. Now the third thing that we see is, uh, is this undervaluing of heavenly reward. This undervaluing of heavenly reward. And that's the section that we're in today. They have undervalued having heavenly reward and have overvalued having earthly reward. Meaning, they would much rather be rewarded here on earth and they're willing in their folly to give up heavenly reward in order to have earthly reward. That is insanity to the highest order. So that's what's happening here. And we're going to explain that. So I won't spend a lot of time, but then last, next week, we're going to see this what I'm calling heedless unbelief. Meaning, you're going to see that the reason that they're not believing in God's Christ, turning to God's Christ, is excuses and different priorities. But really, the essence of that is unbelief. Because if you really believed that this was Christ, you wouldn't go back home to check on your field before you come to Christ. You would forsake everything. It's unbelief. And it's heedless, meaning the fact that they, are, they have a lack of care or attention to the details, right? They have, they are, they're not being corrected by Christ and telling them that they're wrong. So this is the pattern. This section is exposing this. And then this is what's hindering their salvation, or you could say this. This is what's hindering true discipleship. Now, we often think about discipleship as a meeting with somebody um, and reading the Bible and oftentimes drinking a good cup of coffee, right? But discipleship is the decision to follow Jesus. This is what's hindering them. Now, what would make sense is right after this, after pointing out the hindrances, look at verse 25 of chapter 14. Jesus then will show them what true discipleship, true salvation will really cost. Here's the hindrances that you're unwilling to move past in order to come to me, here, and here's what it will cost to follow me. So at that point, it's no longer about the hindrances to salvation. It's about the true path to salvation, right? So now in this, he's making clear this third hindrance, and that's where we are. And let me say this. This is why the world doesn't come to Christ, this is for you to understand. Why isn't my neighbor coming to Christ? Why isn't my family coming to Christ? And this is what it will take for you to come to Christ. What hinders those in this world from coming to Christ, one of the things, because there's nothing new under the sun, right? The depravity that the Bible describes about the human heart is, is consistent in every human, is the love of the world. It's the love of earthly reward. I refuse to give up this world, this earth, this life, reward in this life in order to value heavenly reward. I will refuse to right now silently endure and trust myself 
suffer loss, die to myself, be seen not as great in the eyes of many in the community. I could if I took matters into my own hands and I promoted myself constantly. I probably could compete with them for being great. But I am choosing to die to myself and know that God sees, God knows, God understands, and I'm content with that. I'm willing to be right before God if it means eternal life. I want to be on the side of truth. I don't want to be on the side of popular. I want to be on the side of truth, what's right and what will produce eternal life, not what will win or lose in this life. Are you willing to be on that side? Would you prefer to be on that side? This is what's hindering those from coming to Christ. It's a short-sightedness. It's I have to become great in this world, in this culture, in Mandeville and on the North Shore. And I'll do everything I can. That's the that's point of my life. That's the pursuit of my life. And I cannot give that up in order to follow Christ. So I won't even, I won't even uh, consider it. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's the three things that the love of the world would be defined as. The desire of the flesh, that is usually shown by some form of sexual desire. The desires of the eyes, which is what I want, what I want to get. And then the pride of life, meaning being seen as great in this life. That's the love of the world, right? The, the desire of the flesh, which can be, again, it, it can be described as a lot of different things, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. But it all comes from, this is not of the Father, it's from the world. This is the world. But what you need to understand is the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You got to understand that. It would be silly not to understand that and make the right choice. But men love the fleeting rewards of this world, right? Paul spoke of a man who, who, who uh, is, a, is a prime example of this, a man named Demas. I heard a preacher once say, don't be a Demas. Can everyone say that? Don't be a, a Demas. He was, once, he was once numbered with the apostles, part of their group. And then it says this in 2 Timothy 4, for Demas, in love with this present what? world has deserted me. And that's not even the, uh, the, the, full, the, the, the full scope of his, of his issue. It's not only that he deserted Paul, he deserted who? Christ. Due to the love of the world. So the love of the world is very problematic. The, the unwillingness to give up being thought highly of, to be praised by man, um, but to, to, to what you failed to think through is, is, the, uh, is how short-sighted that, that, uh, that pursuit is. So John 5, 44, because particularly I think this is most manifest in the desire to be thought highly of by others in this world. That's what we, we fight not to be canceled in this life, right? Like that's the fight. That's the essence of the fight of, of the world that you live in. I don't want to be canceled. And if I follow Christ fully, I will probably be canceled in some way or the other. That's the fight that you're going to have to work through. It's what John 5 speaks of. How can you believe? 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. If you, your primary pursuit is not to be right and pleasing to God, but to others, you, can't, you won't be able to follow Christ. Right? So this is the answer. This is the, uh, I mean, this is the issue. And this is what you must be willing to give up and endure now for a heavenly reward. Because what we fail to see if we're unwilling to give it up is this in Mark chapter 8. What does it, what? Profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. So this is the issue. Now, let's move into the division of this matter. How do we see this main point? It's really, it's very simple. I have much to explain um, so it won't take us very much time at all, but let's move into the division of this matter. Basically, how do we see this main point arise from this particular text? And how does the progression of the text lead us to this conclusion? Well, we see in these three verses, the progression of these verses make clear this particular teaching or doctrine. Here's how I've divided them up. Number one, we see the desire. Number two, we see the call. Number three, we see the belief. So first, the desire for earthly reward, that's the wrong desire. The desire for earthly reward, we're going to see that. The second thing that we're going to see is the call from Jesus for willingness to forfeit this earthly reward and entrust yourself to God. And then third, we're going to see what is the belief that empowers that kind of response that the Pharisees must have and that they lack. Number one, the desire for earthly reward. Number two, Jesus' call for the willingness to forfeit earthly reward in order to have heavenly reward, that is to entrust oneself to God. And then thirdly, the belief that empowers this kind of response. So, with the time remaining, let's take these one at a time. Number one, the desire for earthly reward. Let's see this in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, as we mentioned before, this is a parable. This is not speaking of the direct situation that they're in currently, although they are in a very similar situation. He's speaking of giving a banquet, okay? Right now... Um, they are, uh, they, he is at the Pharisee's house, and they are sitting and eating, right? But uh, he's speaking not to this specific situation only, but to a larger truth, okay? So where are they? Well, you know from the fact that we're still in this section, starting in chapter 14, that they are still at the Pharisee's house who invited both Jesus and the man with dropsy in order to catch Jesus. They're still there. They're still at the house. The man with dropsy, they knew that he would heal him on the Sabbath. They're watching them. They're watching him. And yet, in this, we, as we mentioned, we expose the first hindrance, which is their hypocrisy. He does heal the man. He ain't afraid of them, right? He does heal the man, even though he knows that that's what they're looking for. And he exposes their hypocrisy by doing so. That was the first hindrance. The story continues. Pastor Josh preached last week. Tables turn. Jesus starts watching them. And uh, we see this lack of humility, as I, ex as I explained to you, and uh, their own righteousness, trying to get to the front, enter into the kingdom, sit at the right and the left, 
and yet God will send them away. But if they would humble themselves, recognize God's Christ in their own sin, he would exalt them in the last day. So he exposes there their lack of humility. That's the second hindrance. Now, in verse 12, what Jesus does is he turns from speaking to the people who are invited to the one who has invited him. So now he's saying, the one who is hosting, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to expose everybody's sin that's sitting here. He first speaks to the guests, exposes their sin, and then he speaks to the one who has invited him. Verse 7 If you look at that, look up at verse 7, just a few verses earlier. Now, he told a parable to those who what? Were invited. Now, look at verse 12. And he said also to the man who had what? Invited him. So he's speaking to somebody different here. Everyone's listening, but he's speaking to the host as to expose his sin. Now, here's how the background works with this. Here's how the Pharisee culture worked is that you'd only invite these people in order to be invited in return, right? Why? It was, to way, it was a way to ensure your own glory, right? An invitation in the Pharisaical world was a way to ensure that you would be invited in return. It was, uh, it was a form of currency. It was a form of self-serving. It was a form of reciprocity. Like, I'm going to invite someone who will be able to reciprocate and invite me also. If I make much of them, by them being seen as invited by others, I know that they will invite me in return, and I will be made much of by being invited. So this is the glory in the eyes of man. It's a way to receive the same reward. It's a reciprocating for being for inviting. Basically, if you scratch their itch for recognition and reputation and glory, glory and authority and praise of man, you will get your itch scratched as well. It's a way to ensure your own glory, inviting others who will return the favor. So this is ultimately self-serving, praising others out of a way to ensure your own acceptance and rep- reputation. This is manipulation. Now, what I want to say, though, is this is actually not too far off from our culture, right? Um, we, in, the, in America particularly, we, we play that game, right? We play this game, and, and everybody kind of knows it, but you got to play or else you'll get canceled, right? So I got to coddle someone in order for them to coddle me. I'm afraid that one day this group of people may not like me anymore, Therefore, I must coddle the leaders of that group in order that one day that group may not cancel me. Right? That's how it works. And, and even social media, right? Because this is the world we live in. I'm not calling anybody out in particular. It's just the world that we live in. Someone posts something, let me make sure that I praise them in front of others and I know that when the time comes and I'm afraid that I might be rejected when I post something, this person will reciprocate and praise me and therefore I can ensure my own reputation, right? This is how it works. And both parties, whether it be social media or whether it be just friendships or whether it be, both parties kind of know what's going on 
but both are okay with it because it ensures their own um, not being canceled. You kind of know it's maybe it's not genuine, kind of maybe know that it's, it's a little bit fake, but you say, I'll receive it or I'll do it because um, I know that ensures my own success. So you coddle in order not to be canceled. And uh, if, you, if you don't want to be canceled, then you make sure you, you coddle. And coddle means, in this idea, is to, um, to build up or to, to, to not say anything wrong about so that you don't get canceled. This is the situation, and this is, and this is what's happening here. And, what, and it's a way to protect self, to ensure your own glory, to have reward on earth, to not be shamed or rejected or canceled. That is, for some of you, that's the biggest fear of your life. That those who are popular in this, in this culture would reject you. Can I tell you, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. It doesn't have any bearing on anything. Everyone will see Christ one day. The sky's going to crack. He's going to come on the horse. He's going to have tattoos on his thighs. And you know what they're going to say. And then eternity, nothing's going to matter except him. Don't be afraid of that. Be willing to endure and entrust yourself to God now, even if it means loss in this world, in order to be on the side of truth, even if it doesn't mean winning in this world. That's what they're unwilling to do. So Jesus, in verse 12, he's not, when he says this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. He's not saying, he's not giving a commandment not to invite your family or those who have money. Right? We show hospitality to everybody. Unless we think that like money, wealth is is, uh, is sinful. It's not. Look at Ecclesiastes 5. It says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is a what? Gift of God. What about 1 Samuel 2.7? The Lord makes poor and makes rich and he brings low and he exalts. Who makes rich? God. What about in Ecclesiastes 7.14? In the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity, consider that God has made one as well as the other. Basically, hey, you can be happy in one just as long as you're going to be happy in the other, right? So this is not bad, but the Bible does help us clearly understand there's more warnings about, about sexual impurity and about money than any other thing in the whole Bible. So we got to understand that there's a real risk there, right? And we understand that we're not to trust in wealth, nor serve wealth, nor love wealth, but to use it for the service of others, the advancement of the kingdom, the, the growth of our family into Christ's likeness for the good of others and the glory of God, right? So Jesus is not saying to the Pharisees here, don't love those of your neighbors who, who are rich. He's also not saying, I know you don't like your brothers and your friends and your relatives, so don't invite them over, right? He's not saying that. He is speaking to the issue of their hearts. He is saying, don't do that exclusively in order for the purpose of that you would be repaid in this world. If you are, are you willing to do what's right, even if it means forfeiting earthly reward? That's the issue of their salvation. Think about that. That's the issue of their salvation. Are you willing to do what's right even if it means forfeiting earthly reward? I'm God's Christ. I'm the Messiah. You are full of sin 
and you are not in right standing before God, are you willing to recognize that, repent, believe, be right, truthful, on the side of truth, even if that means forfeiting the reward of this earth? This is a tangible example to illustrate a far uh, deeper spiritual truth. Does this make sense? So this is where, this is the issue. This is what is preventing them from submitting to Christ. Luke 6 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. This is the, this is the picture of their, of their hearts. They, uh, they, they are not in it to do what's right by God. They are in it to receive and return. And so this is their heart. Um, in uh, Matthew 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is, this is the idea, even in their righteousness. Are you willing to not, uh, to not show the world your righteousness and, and even be seen as less than or losing in this world or not as great if your father knows and your father is pleased and you don't receive this reward on earth, but instead you receive this reward in heaven. This is what they're unwilling to do. Endure in trust, silently following the Lord and losing in this life. So Jesus exposes their hearts. The second thing is a call for the willingness to forfeit this earthly reward and to entrust themselves, themselves to God. It's a call to forfeit this. In verses 13 through 14a, it says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, for they cannot repay you. This is a call from Christ to the Pharisees to invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the poor. Now, Jesus says, instead of this pursuit of earthly reward, you must have a heart that just truly desires to please God if you're ever going to trust in Christ. Right? This is the, this is the situation. It's an illustration to, to speak to a fundamental truth. It would be as if I was trying to reach one of my neighbors and I said, and I watched and I said, man, this man will never be able to come to faith in Christ because he just, he won't be able to give up this world the earthly reward of this world. And so I say to him one day when we're talking, you know, as we become friends maybe, and I say, man, I notice that you invite a lot of people over um, and, and it's, it's kind of, you know, to, to maintain this worldly reputation and to, to receive back what you're, what, you're, uh, what you're giving to others. And, uh, and I said, you know, what, you know, I ask a question of, you know, what would be a greater motivation, you know, to, to serve others and et cetera. And, and yeah, it's speaking to a specific situation, but I know as I'm asking this question that this is the very essence of what's keeping him from salvation. And I'm assessing, is he willing to even give up reward in this life if it means being on the side of truth, if it means being in right standing with God? And so this is a very practical, tangible uh, illustration, but it's speaking to the very essence of what's preventing them from coming to Christ. So he's pointing this out. He's pointing out their error. He's exposing to them their ways. These are things are our way of life, but this is what they are blind to that's preventing them from coming to salvation. Maybe if they would see this error, maybe they would recognize the deeper heart issue and repent and believe. Luke 11 says, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is addressing the condition of their heart, right? 
So he's saying, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. It doesn't, he's not instructing us here to only invite poor people, crippled people, lame people, and blind people over to our home. Right? And uh, he's, he's asking, in a sense, if they'll be willing to receive nothing in return to do what's right. And he says, look at this, we're almost done. Verse 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Meaning, uh, the Lord will see, and God will, uh, God will be honored, and you may not receive any earthly reward at all. Are you okay with that? Right? That's the condition of their heart. So, this is what we see. We see this, uh, this, this desire for earthly reward, and then we see Jesus' call for a willingness to forfeit it. Now, thirdly, the drum roll is coming from heaven to give us this, this third point. It's the belief that empowers this kind of, of response. The belief that will empower this kind of response. And he says in verse 14, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is it. This is what will cure this hindrance, particularly This particular hindrance of being unwilling to give up reward on this earth in order to receive reward in heaven, this particular hindrance will be cured when you believe with all your heart that the reward you will receive in heaven is far greater than the reward you will have here on earth. And when you believe that by believing in Christ you will receive this reward, and when you value this reward far greater far more greatly than you value the rewards of earth. This is what will allow you to endure and trust, believe in God's Christ for the first time, and continue following him to the end of your days, even if it means loss in this life. Because you don't want to be short-sighted. Think eternally. What does it profit a man to gain this whole world and yet forfeit his soul? It's okay to be not seen as great, to not receive uh, reciprocation, to not uh, have reputation, It's okay to be canceled in this life. Jesus was canceled, and even what we read a few minutes ago, so were all the prophets. You're on the right side. You're on the right side. Care about what's right and what's true. Be on the right side, the truthful side. This is the call. Are they willing in order to receive heavenly reward, to give up earthly reward. We see these hindrances clearly. It's their hypocrisy. It's their lack of humility, thinking they're going to get to this, this place of standing in the kingdom of God on their own. And then it's this undervaluing of heavenly reward. And so uh, they, he says here at the end, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just the repayment will be that you get God and you're vindicated. All those who thought lowly will see rightly, right? You will experience your vindication then and you will get God. God, Christ has not come just to forgive you of your sins so you get no more tears in heaven. That will be a benefit. He has come to bring you to God. You get God. What could be greater than God? Here's an answer. Nothing. That's why he's God. 
And that's what you get for all of eternity. And nothing else will matter. You won't think back, man, I just feel a little bit of shame still because these people didn't think greatly of me. You will not think that. I promise you. Right? You will get reward. You will be repaid. What does he say here? We're almost done. At the resurrection. What is the resurrection? It's for all those who will be raised with Christ. Those who believe in Christ, whose sins are forgiven, therefore death cannot hold because the Holy Spirit has come and lived inside your mortal body. You will be raised spiritually. It's what John 5 says. He says, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will, be, will, will hear his voice. They're going to come out. And those who have done good, the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, the resurrection of of judgment. Daniel 12 says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. That is those who have believed in the Christ and those who may turn to righteousness, who, who have turned, who, who turn many to righteousness. You're going to be like stars forever. And guess what? Ever. And then in Acts 24, having this hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the unjust and or the just and the unjust. This is this great truth dominating. He says, you will be repaid, you will get God at the resurrection for all those who are raised in Christ of the just. How do you become just? By being made right by Christ. That's how you are made just. That's how you are justified by Christ. So this is what you must value, and this is what you must believe if you are to follow Christ and continue following Christ, and this is what is hindering the Pharisees. Romans 8 says, For I consider that the suffering of this present world, of this present time, the sufferings are not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, that is to be revealed to us. This is what you must truly want. So in the end, church, understand this is what is keeping the world from coming to Christ. This is what you must value or believe if you are to come to Christ. And this is what you must continue to value or believe if you are to continue to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is sweet to us and it gives us instruction as to teach us things that we do not know. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us in the faith and that you would cause those who are not to give up the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of this world for eternal reward. And I pray that as we go out into the world to reach the lost, that we would understand this is what is hindering them from saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.